My name is Brad, and I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho. And in the church experience that I grew up in, there was a surefire way to test how much you knew about the Bible. And it was something called a Bible sword drill. Are some of you familiar with this? Okay, some of you are familiar with this. So for those of you who are not, this is where you would get a group of people together, and they would each have a Bible. You would hold it up above your head, usually, and then someone would shout out a reference, like Habakkuk 117. And then you would grab your Bible, and you would flip furiously and try to find Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 17. And the first person who found it would leap out of their seat and would read it with as much gusto as they could muster, and then they would get points for their team and all of that kind of stuff. So... Uh, uh, that's okay. We did. <laughs> I did actually choose, that's a legit reference, that there's only 17 verses in Habakkuk 1. So, uh, but, so you rec- some of you recognize the unique distinctive of the evangelical subculture world that I'm describing. So I remember there being prizes too for the first person who jumped up. There were like gold stars. And then if your team won, there were like t-shirts. Like it was very serious business in this. So the winners, remember... The winners are the people who were the fastest, who could find it the quickest in their Bible. So this was a fun and intriguing game. But as I got a little bit older, I began to question the Bible sword drill and think to myself, how is this actually helping me? Like, okay, I get that it's helping me find stuff in the Bible, But I always lived with a deep sense of conviction that that's why Jesus put a table of contents at the first part of your Bible. So, uh, and I kind of thought, well, maybe is this preparing us for something? Like some kind of heavenly entrance exam to see who can find Habakkuk 117 the fastest. But uh, I didn't live with that conviction either. So, unless somehow finding something fastest in your Bible was important, perhaps I lived with a misguided sense of the Bible sword drill. Maybe a bit like this cartoon, a Bible sword drill. What is it? What is the purpose of the Bible sword drill? Well, last week we began a short series that placed an emphasis on growing in our understanding and connection with the Bible and applying the Bible to our lives. And we stated that the goal really is not how much you know about the Bible or where to find things in the Bible or how fast you can find the things that you know in the Bible. Because you could know where a verse is, you could know what it says, but have absolutely no desire or ability to apply it in your life or an intention to live it out. And this is actually fairly common in North America in particular, when it comes to the Bible, I would venture to say most Christians are educated about the Bible way beyond their level of obedience to the things in the Bible. So the goal can't be just simply the accumulation of more information about the Bible because the intention then is missed of actually hearing and allowing God to speak to us through the Bible, transform us, and then us to live that out. So that's the why 
behind something we do here at Jericho called life journaling. Now, life journaling is a bit of a misleading term uh, because if you heard it for the first time, you maybe would think to yourself, oh, I'm supposed to write down stuff about my life, which is not the point whatsoever. But maybe we should change the name to SHAPE uh, Journaling because that's the acronym that we use. So I'm going to ask Meg if she would come up and describe a little bit of an overview uh, for you. Uh, how many of you have done journaling, shape journaling or life journaling before? Okay, so some of you, but so this might be new for some of you. So Meg, give us a bit of a description about it, and then I'm going to come around with a microphone afterwards and ask two of you to say, what is it uh, about shape journaling the, in this way that's been helpful for you, and maybe why should somebody else try it? All right, so be thinking about that while Meg shares. Okay, so shape journaling, um, I don't have a bookmark, but there's bookmarks at the info table that has, um, on one side, it has the acronym SHAPE. So the first part of it is you're reading a scripture, a passage of scripture. Um, for us, that's Project 345, which, which we're right into Acts right now. So you're reading the passage, it would be one chapter, and you're just reading it. And you're thinking, what is it that stands out to me? What do I feel like... Um, Maybe it's a verse, maybe it's a word, so you're thinking about it. The H then goes on to what do you feel like you're hearing God say to you personally? So not accumulation like Brad's talking about, but what, what is triggered in your heart about this? Um, the A stands for application. You would go on to go, so if this is the verse and this is what I hear, now how does that affect my life? So you would write that down in your journal or um, you could just ponder it. What, what is God asking me to do with that? The P stands for prayer, which is just... Um, a, a response to the application that could be a prayer of like oh my goodness I'm failing it could be a prayer of thanksgiving that you've received encouragement it could be a prayer of action um, I'm going to take this and do this or I feel prompted to um, pass this on and the E is exaltation so that's thanking God for his character I sometimes don't do E just there's no rules you just shop I just shop shape. I just shop journal um and I think for me, you know, sometimes when we talk about things like this, it can kind of feel legalistic or like this is what good Christians do or this is what people that really love the Bible or this is what pastors do. I think um, if we could break it down, this is a really good way to just hear God personally. And I think for me, um, it's been a really good way to go, how can I actually interact with the Lord in a, in a way, like his scripture says it's alive. So how, how is it alive? Like I read some parts of the Old Testament. I'm like, huh? But when you go through a format like this that helps you focus on what is it the Lord is saying to me, it actually does make it intimate. And I think for me, the other great thing is that it shows me that God is alive with me personally um, because he's speaking personally to me about what I read. So for me, it's been a huge source of um, encouragement. It's been a huge source of how I respond to the Holy Spirit and how I interact with him. Um, and, you know, total disclosure, I don't do it every day. Um, and I don't, me and Brad both do it, and you would think, well, you, they, they probably do it together. We don't do it together. Yeah. Uh, we sometimes talk about it, but even that's a fairly new thing. So it's not meant as a rule. It's meant as a tool to engage with the Holy Spirit. Yeah? Yeah, awesome. Okay, okay. so for those of you who have done this before uh, and would be willing to share, why do you think someone else should do it? Stick your hand up, and I'll come around and pick two people and say this is how it's been intriguing or helpful for you and then why somebody else would want to do it. Two hands. All right, Rebecca. <laughs> well, 
it's a good answer to the question of how do I hear God talking to me? Like when I'm just quiet and listen, is that my thoughts or is it God's thoughts? Well, if you hear it from the scripture while you're reading, um, then you can be a little more sure that it, it's God's thoughts for you. And, and secondly, if you do it in a group, when you hear what God is saying to each of you and how some days you each get something different from the verse and other days you all get the exact same thing, you can really see the spirit of God working in the group that you're in. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, that's good insight. One other person. All right, Dale. Just to reiterate, uh, all, uh, I was with a couple other men, and just getting together with the guys is always great because it's tough to do sometimes. But the same thing is everybody has a different take on a piece of scripture, and to hear everybody's, what God's speaking to each different person definitely was, was a highlight. And it's nice to have some organization to it. It gives you, gives you prompts as to how to read and how to go through. So I really appreciated it. Yeah. Great. Well, if you um, want to pick up a bookmark then and track with people here at Jericho, uh, we're just finishing John chapter 21, and then we go into the book of Acts this week. So we'll do the first four uh, chapters of the book of Acts, and uh, it's a great way and a good time to jump in on that. And if we can help you in any way, we'd love to make sure that um, you're prioritizing engagement with God's Word outside of Sunday mornings, which is kind of what this series is designed to help you do as well. Because last week we talked about the fact that could it be that God's desire for you is not simply that you know more about the Bible, but that you actually grow and understand it more. Sometimes I think our understanding gets sidetracked or stymied by funny things like Bible sword drills because we get the wrong ideas in our mind about what the end goal is. But this probably isn't the greatest uh, obstacle and most difficult barrier to understanding the Bible. Because Bible sword drills, I do appreciate that they gave me an ability to find things in the Bible. One thing they didn't give me, though, was a framework off of which to hang or build an understanding of what is the bigger story of the Bible that God is telling. Um, maybe that describes your experience a little bit. Maybe you grew up going to church or Sunday school. Maybe your parents, like mine, dragged you to church to get some religion into you. And you have a series of Bible stories that you might know or be able to vaguely remember. But you're still left with the question, how do those fit together in any meaningful way? Or how do you make sense of what you hear on a Sunday morning in a place like Jericho? How do you fit that into the bigger story of the scriptures? So last week we started this teaching series where the goal is to give you a simple way of understanding an overview of the Bible, a framework, as it were, that could help you take a step back and answer the question, what is the Bible all about anyways? And with the view then to be able to take a piece of the Bible that you hear and fit it in almost like a puzzle. And so these four words or these four movements in the scriptures are like we're kind of creating the edges 
of the puzzle, which I'm told is a good idea to do the edges first in puzzling people. And then you can kind of fit in the rest of the puzzle based on the fact that you know kind of where the design and the edges is. So for this, I'm indebted to an author and pastor, Jarrett Stevens, who wrote a little book called Four Small Words, A Simple Way to Understand the Bible, and uh, reached out to him. He's given us permission to use this material here at Jericho. And in this uh, book, he divides the story of the Bible up into four movements or four acts of a play, as it were, uh, with the design to be able to help us understand more about the story that God is revealing of his character in the Bible. So there's four small words, and they sum up the content of the Bible. So do you remember last week we looked at the first word? Do you remember what it was? The word was of. Al Thiessen is very good for this. When I ask, what did we do last week? Al's first off the mark. So uh, sit close to him, and you'll be, you'll be right-tracking with us. Of. So we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, and the story of our created identity, Who did God create us to be as human beings? And then this morning, we're going to look at between, and as Mike indicated, we're going to try the audacious task of going from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the Old Testament to the end of Malachi and talk about the story of between, the story of separation that enters into our world. And then next week, we'll do with the Gospels, Matthew 1 to Acts 1, where we describe and explore what does it mean that God, in the person of Jesus, was present in our world, and then the rest of the New Testament described through the word in the Holy Spirit, a people indwelt by and empowered for mission by God, the Holy Spirit. So last week, we looked at Act 1, the word of, and we looked at that we're created in the image of God and that... By understanding this, it helps us define and answer some of life's greatest questions. If God exists, what is he like? We find the answer to that in Genesis 1 and 2. Who am I? What is my purpose here on earth? And we see at the beginning of the story that your life has purpose, meaning, and trajectory when you come to understand your identity rooted in Christ in the truth that you are created in the image of God. And this is a wonderful truth, but then we also uncovered that there was something that God gave to us in our created identity that his desire for us was not simply for us to exist as robotic uh, automatons in relationship to God. God gave us because we're created in his image, the ability to choose and gave us free will and choose we did. And so we look in your Bibles in the book of Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see that our first parents succumbed to temptation to willfully disobey God who created everything for them to enjoy and yet specifically told them there's one thing that I'm asking you not to choose, and that is to choose the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam and Eve were convinced that this tree in the garden stood somehow between them and their full humanity and their full relationship for God's best for them. And so they chose to eat of the fruit. And it turns out that was not actually what stood between them and God. And so every... 
religious system in the world answers some foundational questions in some way. Who is God? Who am I? Why am I here? The next question that every religion works to wrestle with is, what is wrong with the world? Why, when I turn on the news every night, why, when I sift through the rubble of my own life and experience and personal brokenness, why is the world broken in little and big ways? What is the problem with our world. And the Bible actually gives a very clear and precise answer to this question. It comes up very quickly in the story in Genesis chapter 3. Listen to how we express it in our international community of Mennonite brethren statement of faith. We say it this way, God, the sovereign Lord of all, created the heavens and the earth through his powerful word. God made humans, male and female, in the image of God. So there's our story from last week, to live in fellowship, connection with each other and with himself and to be stewards of creation. But here's where the problem begins. Humanity abused their freedom, rebelled against God in disobedience, and this resulted in alienation and death. And in this rebellion against God's rule, the evil powers of Satan and sin and death claimed control in our world. See the beautiful dynamic of the story that God began in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where he proclaimed it is good didn't last very long. And quickly we move from a place of beauty and a place of being created in the image of God to something completely different. That intimacy, that community and identity that Adam and Eve shared with God in Genesis 1 and 2 is shattered. And it's shattered for thousands of years in significant ways. And now another word comes to define the story. Not the word of, being in relationship with God so intimately and closely. But now the word between comes to define the story because something has come between God and humanity. So this is our international uh, confession of faith that all of our um, con- communities of Mennonite brethren around the world, of which we as Canadians are part of, would subscribe to. Uh, it's a little bit more narrative in its description. As Canadians, we like precision. And so the Canadian Conf- Conference's Confession of Faith is a little bit less narrative and just says a little bit punchy. Sin and evil have gained a hold in the world, disrupting God's purpose for the created order, alienating humans from God and therefore from creation, each other, and from themselves. Human sinfulness resulted in physical and spiritual death. And because all have sinned, all face eternal separation from God. And the scriptures teach this clearly in the book of Romans. In particular, chapter 3. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the Bible says, Everybody falls short of the beauty of God's plan because everyone has sinned. This is what's between us and God. Now, sin is a word that Christians like to use frequently to describe a whole bunch of things, but not always defined in very precise ways. So what is sin? What is this thing that's come between us and God? Our Confession of Faith's commentary says, sin is any 
act, thought, desire, emotion, word, or deed, or the absence of these things that displeases God. But in Genesis chapter 3, we get a description that lays a foundation for a solid biblical worldview and an understanding of sin and evil. Because remember, God created the world and he declared it is good. Everything that he created, he looked at it and he said, this is good. This is good. But sin and evil intruded and corrupted the world which God created. And when Adam and Eve yielded to temptation, the beginning of the story, there's perfect unity, there's perfect relationship, no division, nothing between. But sin, by its very nature is separation. Sin separates or divides. So we might say that the word between becomes the new major undercurrent for the rest of the Old Testament. In his book, Jared Stevens said, in a way, sin separates, not with a single solitary line, but by a million degrees of separation. Sin separates with an intensity matched only by the level of intimacy that was previously experienced in the garden. In other words, we have no idea how far we have fallen or how much stands between us and God until we see or remember just how close we once were. Sin is separation between us and God, between us and other human beings, between us and the created order, between us and ourselves in some senses. And so a new question enters the story. And the question is this, is sin and evil a fact of life to be merely endured and tolerated? Or is it a problem that can be solved in some way? And again, different religious systems answer this in different ways. Most religious systems in the world talk about our, our ability to manage this kind of um, sin or evil. But the Christian worldview actually presents quite a different picture for us. And that is that sin is something, this separation and the consequences of it, are something that God himself actually takes the initiative to deal with the consequences of this, this betweenness. And in the Old Testament, we have four major movements and four major ways in which God inserts himself into the problem and begins to move toward solution. So in between is act two. If of in Genesis 1 and 2 is act one of the play, this betweenness is act two. And in this scene, then we have act two, scene one, scene two, scene three, and scene four. So act two, scene one, the betweenness in the Old Testament is covenants and commandments. So right quickly, after the sense of between or separation has happened in the world, God initiates covenants to establish relationship with people. And these covenants and these commandments articulate a vision for justice. They in 
articulate a version for right living and relating to God. God makes a promise right away in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and to Eve. He makes promises to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David. And these are promises or ways of relating that God holds out of invitations for God's people to trust his goodness based on evidence of his faithfulness even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. God substitutes, as it were, his former presence with future promises that look forward with anticipation to forgiveness of sin coming not from, for example, the blood of shed animals in the sacrificial system, but to a perfect sacrifice that would deal ultimately and once and for all with the problem of sin and evil. And so commands and covenants in Genesis and particularly in Exodus are one way which God instituted rules for living that guided everyday life with God. Now, what Adam and Eve had just heard with their ears in that walking with God in the garden, subsequent generations would have to read with their eyes and it was written down so that they could understand in the form of covenants and commandments. So God, in his grace and in his mercy, gave people ways of relating to him and each other that began to set the stage. And then we have Act 2, Scene 2, which begins in Exodus and takes us through the book of Judges. And in this period of the Old Testament, we see tabernacles, temples, and priests and here we see yet another way in which God, by his grace, works to go between and bridge this gap. And so God here gives specific instructions of a way in which he would be willing to meet people in a physical space, the very first physical space since Eden where he promised that his presence would be. So priests and became, and the temple and the tabernacle became that place where people could meet with God. And priests were the means whereby the heart of God, which had been largely silent, was given voice again to people. And so God again created a way where that gap could be bridged. And we're beginning to see how the big picture of the Old Testament is God initiating again and again ways and means to bridge the gap between us and him, a burning bush for Moses, a cloud of pillar uh, or a fire by night that demonstrated his presence to the people of Israel, priests that by the heart of God could be articulated people, an elaborate system of worship in the tabernacle, in the temple, which people could then come and meet with God and have the problem of sin dealt with. So Act 2, Scene 2. Then we move into Act 2, Scene 3, and we have a new set of characters introduced onto the stage. We see here in the book of Judges, in particular, just a repeated element of the cycle of sin that we get caught up in as individuals and as people. People are close to God, and then they wander away from Him, either willfully or they drift away. And then they get into trouble, 
and they cry out to God for help, and they say, God, would you come? Would you save us? Would you help us? And God graciously intervenes and provides for them a deliverer in the form of a judge or a king. And these judges or kings foreshadow for us the ultimate deliverer who is coming. The kings, when we look at Israel as a nation, they demand a king. They say, God, we don't want you to just be in charge of us by yourself. We need someone to go between you and us. And so they ask for a king. And like so many other examples in the Old Testament, the people end up worshiping the thing in between rather than the God at the end. And so as we move through the story of the Old Testament, we have 41 kings and one queen who rule over Israel and Judah. And we read their stories and we see that of the 42 of them, only 10 could be described in any way, shape, or form as good. And even the good ones have problems. And good might be a stretch for describing those 10. Uh, These people are so desperate for a good king that it's no wonder that when Jesus comes onto the scene in the New Testament, that people tried to make him into a king. But see, Jesus is a king unlike the kings of the Old Testament and the rulers of the Old Testament because Jesus comes and he announces and establishes and rules over a new kingdom that's unlike anything they've seen. It's an upside-down kingdom that brings heaven to earth instead of trying to get earth to look more and more like heaven. And it's a kingdom that changes people, not by ruling over them externally imposed guidelines, but by ruling in them and transforming their very lives from the inside out. But I'm starting to preach my message for them already for next weekend, so I'll leave it for you there. But the Old Testament is filled with this sense of looking ahead and giving us these wonderful pictures of what it is that God is doing. But it's not just filled with narratives or lists and laws. In this middle section in the Old Testament, we have five books called wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Written by some of these kings and these leaders, this is like the soul of the Old Testament. These heartfelt cries that people articulate and say, God, this between this is killing me. I wish it could be something other than this. And so it's a very raw expression of human emotion and experience. And this is why, likely, last week I talked about the Gideons and the Gideons Bible. It's likely, likewise, it's likely why the Gideons, if they choose to include something beyond the New Testament, they sneak in the Psalms and the Proverbs. Because that's a great place to begin in the Old Testament of trying to understand what is the heart cry of a person who's longing to try and connect with God. And it's been a great uh, source of encouragement for people through the centuries. It's a good place for you to begin to explore the Old Testament if it's unfamiliar territory to you. I know people here at Jericho who, for example, take the book of Proverbs, 31 chapters, 31 days, and read the proverb for that day of the month that aligns with that, just as a way of helping really build into their life God's truth. 
Some people uh, in our Project 345 reading plan, which you can download on your phone, you can get it emailed to you if you like. There's a Project 345 Plus plan, and the plus is adding in some of the Old Testament. So some of the people that have been through Project 345 a couple times have said, I want to dig in a little deeper to the Old Testament. So that's another resource for you. Uh, and you can just download that from Bible.com, and it's a great way to kind of begin to move through the Old Testament and introduce some segments of the Old Testament from the wisdom literature. Spice your reading up a little bit. So that's the Old Testament in the movement there. And as we begin to move into that final scene of the Old Testament, a chunk of real estate that actually takes up a quarter of the Old Testament it's perhaps the least explored section of the Old Testament, and this is the prophets from Isaiah chapter 1 through Malachi chapter 4. And in this period of history, God is speaking to his people through prophets. And these prophets are a little bit like the judges before them, that God raises up people to stand in the gap and to be able to speak his words and his truth into people's lives individually and then also nationally and to try and get people's attention. People who stood in the gap between humanity and God. They were like mediators at the negotiation table. But this time in history, we read and, and understand that God's people's ears were so clogged up that they couldn't hear what he was saying. Their hearts were so hardened that the prophets had to do some crazy stuff to try and get people's attention, and still they were unresponsive. I mean, you can read through the Proverbs and think about Isaiah and Jeremiah, both of whom ran around naked for a while as a symbol of something to try and get people's attention. And I mean, there's some crazy things that happen in the prophets. And as you begin to read through them, you have to begin to sift some of that and figure out what was God trying to say again to his people and why did he have to go to such incredible lengths to say it? But both in the major prophets and the minor prophets, God is attempting to get the attention of his people to turn their hearts back to God. And so in the prophets, there's various styles, there's various approaches, various levels of effectiveness, but Almost always their message is fairly consistently repent. No, seriously, repent. No, like I mean it, repent, or something very bad is going to happen to you. And eventually, something very bad does happen to God's people. And they actually are invaded by foreign lands, and God allows them to be taken into captivity because of their disobedience. People like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, Hosea, Malachi, making plea after plea after plea to say, would you turn your heart back to God? God still desires for this gap to be bridged. And people saying, eh, I don't think so. Not as interested. Thanks very much. Just as a bit of a teaser, we're going to be jumping into a sermon series after this one in the book of Isaiah. February 21st, we'll start that. And it's called New Day Dawning because both The Force Awakens and A New Hope are already trademarked. <laughs> but in the book of Isaiah, there's so many messages of encouragement that come right off the pages for us in our day and time. Words of encouragement, words to turn our hearts to God that come from the pages of that prophetic book. 
So there you have it. The Old Testament in a nutshell. If I was to put it on a timeline, this is what it would look like. We have creation, fall, flood, Babel, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, judges, kings, prophets. And then when we get into the kings, we get them split into two kingdoms. The kingdom of Judah that then gets exiled to Babylon. The kingdom of Israel that got taken by the Assyrians. Then God's people come back. We have Ezra and Nehemiah trying to rebuild. And then Malachi finishes about 430 B.C. And then God's silent for 400 years until the start of the New Testament. The Old Testament tells story after story after story of in-betweens. It's a story of people on a move but never quite coming home. It's a story of how people respond to a God who's always present but suddenly seemingly distant. It's a story of God who continues to build bridges when his people continue to build walls. And while the Old Testament begins in the at the very start of Genesis, with such promise of God being so present and wonderfully relating to people, it ends at the end of Malachi with a sense of melancholy, a note that punctuates the power and presence of the space in this betweenness, where the Old Testament begins with the words, it is good, but by the time you get to the end, you kind of feel like... All might be lost. But in the midst of all of this, the very logical question that should be coming to your mind about now is, so if that's their story, and that's the story of the Old Testament, what in the world does the Old Testament have to do with me? Why should I even bother reading or engaging with the Old Testament? Well, one of the things that I find intriguing is that if you fast forward just a little bit, and Mike, I promise I'm trying so hard not to preach your message from next weekend. But if you fast forward just a little bit, and you're asked the question, well, why bother with the Old Testament? One of the answers to that question is found in the book of Matthew. So open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 and look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Because one of the first responses to why bother with the Old Testament was Jesus bothered with the Old Testament. Matthew 5, 17, there, people are asking him, Jesus, did you come to just radically do something wholly new that has no congruity with what we understand from history and God's work in the world? And Jesus says, Matthew 5, 17, oh, no, no, no. Do not misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandments and you teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, Jesus, when given the opportunity to say quite clearly, Old Testament, I'm going to take a pass on it, give it a thumbs down, does actually quite the opposite. Jesus elevates it instead of abolishing it. The Old Testament is, in some ways, the Bible that Jesus read. It is the record of God's revelation to his people. 
and we stand in a long line of receivers of God's revelation in the whole of the Bible. I love the way author Philip Yancey puts this in his cheekily titled book on the Old Testament, The Bible Jesus Read. He says, you want to talk about the Old Testament? He says, the Old Testament is not a mysterious, outdated book. It's God's biography. It's the story of his passionate encounters with his people and the prequel to the story of Jesus. It's also the Bible that Jesus read, used, and loved. This is what Jesus is driving at in Matthew chapter 5. The Old Testament gives us something of a gift. It gives us a rich and deep understanding of God's character. It gives us an understanding as we progress through salvation history that God's revelation actually is coming clearer and clearer and clearer into focus for us. Recently, I went to the eye doctor. Uh, the rest of the family had appointments. I didn't, and I had forgotten to make an appointment. And I said to the doctor, could you sneak me in? And they said, yes, we can sneak you in. So, you know, when you go to the eye doctor, uh, they check your existing glasses and all of this, and then they put that big kind of thing in front of your face. And they're flipping back and forth with lenses, and they say, which is clearer now, number three or number four? Number three or number four? To me, most often it looks the same, or there's some big distinction. But I feel like it's a test, and so if it's a test, I really want to do well on the test. And so it's like as you go further and further through your exam, they're getting number three, number four. Oh, number four is a little sharper. Good. Then they flip some dials and make it. And then number five or number six, which is clear. Number five or number six. Oh, number five was clear. Oh, perfect. Flip some more dials. Okay, which is clear? Number six or number seven? And finally, when you get to the end, it's like, yes, this is the clearest now that I should be able to see through the whole progression of this appointment. And in some ways, the Old Testament is like that. The, re the revelation that God is giving to us gets progressively clearer as we move through the Old Testament and come to understand God's heart more. As we move and start, things are fuzzy. And as we get progress, the goal is to get a sharper or more defined image so that we can see clearly in the end. The revelation of God's heart gets progressively clearer as we move through things like the sacrificial system. And it's as if God asks us, does, does this help explain a little bit more the depth of consequences of sin and separation? How about, how about this? How about when I supernaturally intervene to release you from slavery in Egypt? Does that give you a clear picture of my heart? How about when I graciously worked with my servant David and called him a person after my own heart, even after he screwed up so significantly? Is it getting clearer now for you? Covenants, a little bit clearer. Commands, temples, priests, judges, kings, prophets, all moving us to the place where not only do we see the problem clearly, but we begin to get a sense that the solution might be coming into focus and the solution is not within our ability or grasp on our own strength or initiative. 
See, God paints in the Old Testament for us a clear picture, both of the problem, the problem being sin, and the solution. And the solution is God's redemptive plan. So this is the dynamic beauty of the Old Testament. You can read it, and you get increasingly frustrated with the fact that it's not as it should be. And the dynamic beauty of the Old Testament is to show us that the problem of separation is indeed so problematic that no matter how humankind worked at it, they could not solve it on our own. It gives us a clear picture of the problem and also of the solution. See, this is the beauty that the Old Testament brings to me. When I read it, I see how my story is reflected in the cycle of the Old Testament. Sure, my story is a new chapter, new context, some new sins maybe, but it's kind of the same cycle. God extends himself to his people. His people respond all as well. People desire something other than God. God's people reject God. God allows them to live in the consequences of their sin. God's people are broken. They cry out to him. God extends himself to his people and they respond. But then the same cycle repeats itself in my life. God extends himself to me. I respond all as well. I desire something other than God. I reject God. God allows me to live in the consequences of my sin. I am broken by it if God is merciful. And God extends himself to me, and I respond in repentance and all is well, and the cycle begins all over again. So here, friends, is the implication for your story and for mine. Because the Old Testament ought to bring up two profound questions that we wrestle with or that we ought to wrestle with. And the first question is about this cycle. And it's the question, is there anything currently between you and God? Is there anything currently between you and God, a sin that would require repentance? Because the Old Testament goes to great lengths to describe for us the consequences of continuing to live in a place and space where we invite things between us and God. Maybe it's a secret addiction. There's plenty of that described in the Old Testament. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's the way in which we ignore or disregard people who are poor. There are so many examples in the Old Testament of what happens when you choose to live in a way that is not in alignment with God's best intentions. And one of the things I find that happens for me is when I read the Old Testament, it shines a light on those areas in my own life and heart. And I begin to ask, God, do I do those kinds of things? Of course, my first reaction response is usually, whoa, those people are way offside. And then if I allow it to sit with me for a while and ask God specifically, God, is there any of that kind of attitude or action in my own life? Oftentimes, God will bring things to the surface 
And I begin to say, you know what, God, you are right. I do do those kinds of things. I am that kind of person. And so we begin to wrestle with the cry then that comes from the psalm, Psalm chapter 51. God, if I'm that kind of person, I need you to create in me a fresh heart, a new heart. I need a renewal of relationship with you. And the Bible's word for this is repentance. And repentance is just a fancy way of saying, I get to the place in my life where I acknowledge and say, yep, there's something between God and me. And I can't actually kick it out of the way on my own with just trying harder or working at it in some way to become a better person. The only way that that can be dealt with is for God to remove it and for me to say, God, I actually repent of that. I don't want that. Could you rid my life of that? And maybe for you, you're here today and that's actually the first time you've heard that articulated. Maybe you've thought about sin in a much more sort of cultural sense of, well, sin's just sort of a list of things that people shouldn't do. And if I try not to do them, and maybe there's, I do more things that are good than things that are not good, maybe God would just be able to overlook that stuff. Well, no. Friend, the lesson of the Old Testament is that distance between God who is holy and untainted by sin in any way and you and I is simply too great to be overcome on the grounds of personal merit. But, oh, Mike, I'm trying not to preach your message. But I have to preach this part of it that there is a way to close that gap because that is the way that God gave for us in the person and work of Jesus to start a vibrant new life with God here and now that begins here and now that goes on forever by you acknowledging and saying, God, I see that you have taken all of the initiative to close this gap and I respond with repentance. I trust that what you did through Jesus on the cross and his saving work was sufficient to release me from the penalty of sin. And I embrace and receive that. But see, acknowledging need, acknowledging that we are in some way insufficient or cannot do something on our own is actually one of the hardest things for us to do in our culture. But this is one of the things that we see so clearly painted for us in the Old Testament. There's a second implication that the Old Testament highlights for you and I. And it brings up a question that is, okay, well, maybe if I just pray and sort of get this betweenness out of the way with me and God, we'll be good, right? Everything will be solved. Hunky-dory, ready to go up and to the right. Well, the Old Testament would counsel you against that type of overt optimism. Because... We live in a time of betweenness still. This betweenness that's expressed in the Old Testament, not in the sense of sin and an inability to deal with that, because that's why God gave us Jesus, but in the sense of distance, in the sense that we're not yet fully, everything that God's purposes in history have yet to fully be realized. We're in an in-between time still now. That Everything is not as it should be in our lives. And so the question that the Old Testament brings up for me is, can I trust God 
in those seasons, these betweenness places. Because we probably all know how that feels, a seeming distance from God. You pray and you hear nothing. No matter how many times you feel like you're doing right, your heart is still broken. Diagnosis comes back worse than you expected. Kids still rebel, run away from God. And think, I still feel like I'm living in this between time. That there's something between me and God. And the reality is we're living in a time between separation and full restoration. And Mike's going to delve into that story more next week of how Jesus enters time and space and God provides a sense of withness even in those times between. But our story, friends, is still a time of betweenness. And so our deepest challenge that echoes from the pages of the Old Testament is the question, can God be trusted in these between times? Is he enough for you? Is he enough for me? And this is where the Old Testament for me has such vibrancy and such potency because it tells the story after story of people who have not seen in the language of Hebrews 11 and yet believe. There's a whole list of them. And maybe for you, your assignment this week might be to read Hebrews and refresh your memory on some of the people who lived in those between spaces and yet who said, you know what, God? I still choose to trust you when not all is clear. In those times when I'm betwixt and between, I still trust you. Brad and Ron and the team are going to come and they're going to lead us in two songs of response. And those songs echo that theme. And they invite us to consider not only our need, our need for the Lord, but also our need for each other. And that's why, friends, we have a response prayer team here every week at Jericho Ridge. We don't have it because that's a place where you can go and talk about your deepest, darkest secrets. We have it because that's a place where you can say to somebody, I need you to stand with me in this season of life. I need encouragement. I need someone to celebrate with me. I need someone to pray about this thing that's going on in my life and be encouraged. I want you to lift me up in this between times of prayer to God. And so Mike Ryder's going to be over at this side and Megan and I'll be over at this side. And while the team leads us, uh, then I'd invite you to make your way over there and participate. And the team would be happy to pray with you. Would you stand with me? And we're going to pray and worship together. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you that you have given us such a clear picture of what it looks like, what our lives look like, and what our cycle of our lives looks like. And you've gifted us story after story after story, example after example of your heart and your character moving to try and bridge gaps. And Father, we do confess today that in my own life and in so many of us here, you have been about the business of building bridges in our lives to reach us and we still have been about the business of building walls. And so, Father, today in this place, I pray that you would begin to break down some of those walls and barriers. Would you open our hearts to hear from you anew? Open our eyes to see you in fresh ways. 
Open our ears to hear you in fresh ways and open us to respond in obedience. We acknowledge our need of you, Father, individually, corporately, and we ask that you would come, Spirit, and refresh it and refresh us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.